What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both in their companies and in their personal lives, and what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. Today, I'm talking to Dave Sense. Dave, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Cortland. Excited to be here. Thanks for joining. You are the founder of two different tech companies, both of which are self-funded, both of which are profitable and generate many millions of dollars in revenue, and both of which have dozens of employees. So my first question for you right out of the gate is how do you do that? How do you juggle running two multi-million dollar businesses simultaneously? Oh, well, first you start with naivete. You don't know what you're getting into, right? So first business I started way back in 2000, and, just, and it was my third attempt that year. So in 2000, I tried three different businesses. The first two, just sort of, I knew they weren't going anywhere and I gave up on them. But the third one seemed to take hold. And then the next one wasn't all the way till 13 years later, 2013. So I just had the energy and, and by then we had grown. I was able to recruit and retain some really talented folks. And so that makes all the difference in being able to run two organizations at the same time. How much time would you say you devote to each of your businesses? Flux, which you started back in 2000 and Flowify, which you started in 2013. Right. Uh, so lately with Flowify just charging hard, I've been like, 90 to 95% Flowify and 5 to 10% Flux. And let's just call it 90-10 these days. Um, just that's, that's where the attention seems to go. Cool. So you must have a lot of delegation going on. You mentioned you have employees and good hires that you've made at Flux. You've got, I think, six employees at Flux and 35 at Flowify. That's right. You got it right on the head. So six at Flux, 35 at Flowify. Flowify grew out of Flux. So in the beginning, you know, Flowify was just a part of Flux. Then we spun it off and it's been growing really hard. And yeah, we're up to 35 now. We talked a little bit before this podcast and you must be really good at delegation because two businesses even isn't really enough for you. You're considering a way to potentially partner up and maybe help start a third business, a third venture somehow. Uh, what would that even look like with you spending so much of your time on these first two businesses? So that's a really good question. So I've learned from some of my customers at mortgage companies. These are folks who they have a successful mortgage company. They have four to 800 employees or sometimes more. And they're the CEOs and they spin off these little side ventures, if you will. But what they've done is they don't do it all themselves. It doesn't become an in-house thing. They partner with people that they know well, entrepreneurs who are really motivated. And so I think it's a way for them to tap into that excitement of entrepreneurial excitement where maybe that mortgage CEO couldn't recruit someone to join the mortgage company, but they can say, hey, let's partner up legally. You know, I'll own some shares, you'll own some shares, and let's do it together. And one of the really neat things about working with mortgage CEOs, they do it for cash money. They they work hard. And their companies pump out profit. So it's very different than the tech world where it's all about your valuation and who's going to acquire you. And it's none of that. And it, it's very grounding. Yeah, I have so many questions I want to ask you about that, about the mortgage industry in general, and also some of the things you've learned from working with some of these founders, because it's completely off my radar as like a tech founder. And I'm sure people listening uh, don't know very much about it. But I think it's interesting you mentioned entrepreneurial energy. Because every time I talk to a successful founder 
who's running you know, a very profitable business, and yet they're still working super hard on their business and talking about starting more businesses. They have some kind of a reason why they keep working hard that stops them from just retiring to a life of leisure on a beach somewhere. What's that reason for you, Dave? Yeah, I just think that there's always something really exciting that you really get pumped up about and you really want to go after it. Like I am thinking, friend of mine, we are considering going on a joint venture and no, I wouldn't work in it day to day, but I'm really pumped about the idea. And so, you know, I like to say like Dave doesn't scale. I know I don't. (laughs) And this is kind of a way I can have my like fingers in a few additional pies and, uh, you know, my wife and I own Flux and Flowify completely. And so we feel, I feel like I have my thing, like my little sandbox and I can play in my sandbox and it's great. And it's great. And so like all of our employees have what I call ownership and trust. Really, that really means autonomy and trust. And they get to expand their sphere of influence the more and more they lay down a really good track record. And maybe if they break trust, maybe that sphere collapses a little bit. But um, I've got Flux and Flow. If I really feel that it would be a great opportunity to tap into that entrepreneurial energy, and I no longer feel like any additional businesses I do I might need to be like the sole founder of. Like I'm really happy to partner with with special folks that I already know. So is it safe to say that you're doing this? You know, as cliche as it sounds, uh, more for the journey rather than some sort of destination you want to hit, or is there a destination that you really want to get to? There's a little bit of a destination. Um, it's just like. Flowify and this alternate business, like they kind of, there's a synergy to it. You know, it's not like completely this new, completely different thing, like jet ski tours in the Caribbean. No, it's nothing like that. <laughs> so there, there is a connection and I kind of want to see like where we can go with it. So let's talk about your most recent business, Flowify. Your older business, Flux, you started back in 2000. That's been going for almost 20 years now. But Flowify, you spun out of Flux and you started it in order to solve one of your own problems. So I want to dive into to exactly what that looks like. Uh, what was the problem you were facing and how did that lead to the idea for Flowify? Yeah, so I, uh, my wife and I both moved here to Boulder, Colorado, and we used some short-term financing to get into our home. But then after 90 days, I wanted to refinance my house for a long-term loan. And so I went through a local credit union to do the refinance. And I just discovered, oh my goodness, like like the loan officer, he was great. He gave me all these options. And when I finally, it took me about, took a little while to decide, okay, I'm going to go with the local credit union. He handed me over to his loan officer assistant. And then I thought, oh my goodness, like her job, I could make it so much better. Like <laughs> she lived in her email, her Outlook email. It's like, mm-hmm. that was her job. Like saying, hey, I need your tax returns. I need your W-2s. I need your bank statements all this kind of thing. And she'd email her requests and she'd send this long list of things. And I sent most of them back and I missed a couple of things because I'm a human, I'm just a human. Right. And she'd remind me, Hey, you missed a couple of things. And then when I sent in my tax returns, being, being a geek, I was not going to email tax returns, right. Security and all that. So I encrypted them, sent them off and I started waiting. And like, I waited a couple of days. I didn't hear anything. And so I called her up and I said, Hey, did you get my tax returns? She's like, yes. <laughs> and I was like, so? And she's like, well, I couldn't open them. So that was really the genesis of everything. I thought I, I really thought that I could make it so she could be a loan officer assistant to five loan officers, let alone one. And, and also me as a borrower, I knew I could make my own experience so much better. So that was, that's, that's the origin story for Flowify. 
I think plenty of people encounter problems and annoyances in their everyday life, uh, whether it's with you know trying to get around a new city or renting an apartment or something that's annoying about buying groceries or cooking. But what made this particular problem stand out to you as something you should start a business to solve? So at the time, I was looking for a new business to enter into. So Flux had been going strong for a long time, 13 years by that point. And I was starting to hunt around. I was thinking like, what else could we go into? And I had no idea what that might be. So that was in the back of my mind. And I did dig into it. The dig in, I, I dug into the industry. I learned that there were about 400,000 loan officers in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I thought, without doing too much deep analysis, I thought this is you know probably a big enough market. Didn't need to become a unicorn or anything like that because I knew how the structure of it was going to be ahead of time. It just needed to you know be able to get to 10 million. So you're already kind of in idea generation lookout mode when you sort of encountered this arena financing situation and you were, I guess, extra aware that, you know, anything you ran into could be a business idea. Are there any other ideas you considered or was this sort of the first one that popped into your head when you decided that you wanted to start something new? So there was one other idea and I won't even go into too much about it, but it's around, it centers around creating bank accounts electronically. So we had a meeting with JP Morgan Chase And there was an initiative there. So basically, you could create bank accounts via API. And after meeting with the Chase folks, they were excited about it, but I could just tell this was going nowhere. Like There weren't a sufficient number of people interested. And when you're working with a big bank, I mean, things just don't move as fast. And so I was kind of juggling this Bank, create bank accounts via API idea, you know, the mortgage idea. And in the end, it just became crystal clear if something was going to start happening, it was going to be with a mortgage idea. I'm curious how you think about coming up with business ideas. Because I've talked to so many different indie hackers at meetups or online who are in kind of the same phase that you were. Where they're like, I want to start something, but I'm not sure what it should be. Let me keep my eyes peeled for different opportunities. How do you go into that situation? How do you evaluate whether a business idea is good? Did you have any sort of like criteria, requirements, or are you just sort of, you know, willing to work on whatever excited you? So I'm not going to say that I was so smart and brilliant and had a, had a deep analytical mind. I'm a little bit of the type where I just tend to dive in if it feels right intuitively. And so it, it was a little bit of research there. You know, how big is this market? Of course, we all kind of intuitively know how big is the United States mortgage market. We do know. We hear numbers coming out of the news all the time. So it was kind of a medium level of effort, of, of insight. And um, yeah, sometimes you just don't know. And everyone talks about like, you know, work on what you know, but some of these industries are so deep. So you start on what you know and you get into it a little bit, and then you find like whole other areas that you never knew even existed. Yeah. And so that part's really fun when you just go deeper either in the industry you're in or like some adjacent technology or some adjacent business need, something like that. So that's how it's been going for me. Did you know anything about the mortgage industry before you started doing this research? No, I knew nothing other than I've gotten a couple mortgages before then. And so I think it's the old fresh look, you know, like, hey, I'm going to put a fresh look on this industry. I haven't been in it like 20 years, like a lot of other folks. And I think the fresh look worked. Yeah. It's pretty scary, though. I was talking to uh, John O'Nolan way back earlier on the podcast, and he had a really good point about how when you look at an industry that you don't know very much about, you might see a gap in the market. You might see an opportunity. 
But a lot of times that hole is only there because you don't understand what's going on. And there's actually a lot more that when you learn, you realize, oh, there's a reason why this hole is there. There's a reason why no one's done this. Were you at all curious, you know, why hasn't somebody made this easier for these loan officers? I was curious and I did my digging around and I found like a couple small software companies in the United States who had ostensibly been doing the same thing. They didn't seem that big. They didn't seem to have a whole lot of traction. So it seemed like from the perspective of as a borrower or loan officer assistant and what I now know to be like mortgage processors and everyone involved in mortgage operations, Mm -hmm. I know they don't get the same kind of love that either loan officers get or compliance people get. Because in the mortgage industry, compliance is huge, as you might imagine. And if you don't do things just right, you will get a very large parking ticket from the federal government, and nobody wants that. It's pretty fascinating to look at the different industries that get different amounts of love from developers and entrepreneurs. I mean, if you're, for example, a software engineer, there's probably a startup out there that could fix every imaginable problem (laughs) because there's so many software engineers who want to solve their own problems. Uh, If you're in the mortgage industry, it's like you said, unless it's something that's super important like compliance, uh, there's not as much love. And so it's, it's easier for you to enter that industry. It, it is. And, and again, I, I do feel I got lucky just stumbling across something that needed love. We brought the love that it needed and we're still going. But it's great to be able to provide the people who are not necessarily at the front of the house. You know, when you walk into a mortgage company or a bank or a credit union, you're not necessarily shaking hands with the back office staff. But that back office staff still needs lots of love. And then we're been going through uh, over the last couple of years, especially, there's been lots of changes with rates going up, up, up. And recently, they've been going down, of course. And the mortgage industry is really trying to figure out how do they do the same amount of loan volume? Actually, how do they increase the amount of loan volume with the same staff? So when I started six years ago, we were kind of in a boom time. And some of the the loan officers who did tons of loan volume, they would say, oh, I have a greater need. No problem. Just go hire somebody. Because that was the kind of climate where they could do that. They could go hire somebody. And me just thinking like, okay, this this can't last, right? The solution is never just go hire a small army of people. So, but it was maybe slightly ahead of time, the right time. And so, but that was all okay. Like the need was still there and we fulfilled it. But then over the last 18, 24 months with rates going up and they're still volatile, of course, it's become abundantly clear. Everyone wants to do more loan volume than they're doing today with the same number of staff. So explain to me the idea behind Flowify, at least the initial idea when you first came out with it. What was the exact business that you wanted to start? What was the product you wanted to build? Yeah, so I wanted to create that one screen that a borrower could go to and interact completely with their mortgage loan officer and the mortgage company or the bank or the credit union behind that mortgage. And to make it easy to do things like provide the documents like my encrypted tax returns or my W-2s and my pay stubs, my driver's license, all that kind of information. That's how it was in the very, very beginning. And then I got connected with our very first customer. Her name's Melanie Taliaferro. She's down in Austin, Texas. She's awesome. Still a customer. Love her. And I started talking a lot to her. I, I'd go visit her office for a couple days at a time and just hang out. And just like see what's going on. And so lots of great ideas came from spending time with Melanie down in Austin. And so we built some additional capabilities, capabilities for like messaging out to realtors and like, hey, realtor, 
here's generally where we are in the process. So realtors send lots and lots of deals to mortgage loan officers. So loan officers love their realtors. They want, they would love to bring them cookies every day, but there are there are federal laws against giving any kind of compensation <laughs> to realtors. You can't do it. It's illegal. You cannot give tickets to the game, nothing like that. So what's the one way you can thank a realtor? You can thank them by keeping them up to date. You know, mm -hmm. don't let them wonder where they're, what's going on with their deal. And number two, get the loan closed on time. That's the way you can thank a realtor. So a lot of these additional ideas came out in the early days just by, I literally went and physically hung out with our first customer. Yeah, I, I love that. It's the way to compensate basically for really not understanding an industry, not being someone who's worked there for 20 years. You just got to find someone who has and sort of attach yourself to them at the hip. How do you convince you know a customer to let you shadow them and just hang out in their office? And what are some of the, the, the things you look, look for when you're in that situation to come up with business ideas and feature ideas? So that part's pretty easy because you're there to help them, really. So you're there to understand their business and I've met very few people who have said to me, no, I don't want you to understand my business better. So everyone's got that open arms kind of perspective. And so I think everyone's always been willing to let us in. And in the beginning, it was just me. You know, I would just go hang out for eight hours a day for a couple nights, a couple days, and just talk to the crew there. And they were all just happy to share with me whatever they were doing. Do you remember any of the surprising things you learned or maybe any of the hypotheses and assumptions you made that ended up not being true as a result of talking to them and figuring out how things really worked? I mean, there were just, there was a ton of things that like, just with my own intuition, we got right from the start. I think the fundamental premise for how our software works turned out to be a good guess and a good bet on how it all worked. And then there were other things that was just like a total whiff. Like I didn't fully understand that First of all, that there could be, like at the very beginning, I just thought a loan officer would be my customer. That's it. And it took a little while to realize, wait, multiple loan officers roll up into a single, single company. So, you know, that took a little additional coding a couple of years down the road. Different things like that. So sometimes I made the right guess in the beginning and sometimes I didn't. And we'd have to go back and recode, re-understand what the requirements ought to be. So, yeah, about half the guesses were right and half the guesses were wrong. <laughs> I want to stay on this topic of entering an industry that you don't know very much about. One of the most off-shared pieces of advice is that you want to start a business where you actually like your customers. At the very least, you like what you're doing so that you know, when the going gets tough, you stick with it. Or you know, 10 years down the road, you don't want to abandon your business. Uh, with Endy Hackers, I have that. I've always been kind of an Endy Hacker. I get to talk to people like you about your stories, which is super exciting to me. I get to talk to people on the forum and at meetups all the time. Uh, with you, you're enter entering a completely new industry. It probably wasn't you know, a guarantee that you were going to really enjoy dealing with loan officers and people in the mortgage industry. How did that turn out? Did you, did you end up liking your customers? And do you think that if you hadn't, you would have stuck with FlowFi? It turns out I do like my customers. They're just like a crazy bunch. Like when you get with them in person and it's, it's an evening celebrating maybe a great year or a great month or what have you, like these are like a partying bunch of people <laughs> who are kind of the complete opposite of me. I just want to go back to my hotel room with my book, you know? And so, but they're all so friendly, you know, and they love what we built and they recognize that we help them. And so they're always just been super welcoming. And um, I just wanted to, they became effectively my friends and I want to help my friends, you know, even if I've only met my friend once over the last five years, 
I still consider them that way. And I want to deliver something that's really high value for them, makes their day better and their whole team's day better. That's a cool idea that becoming friends with your customers is probably the best motivation hack because now you have a whole extra reason why you actually want to do a good job and actually build something that they want rather than, you know, focusing too much on what you think they want or, you know, some misconception of what you should be building. It's, it's sort of a forcing function for building the right thing. Yeah. One of my customers told me a couple months ago, he said, hey, Dave, I know you like to please people and like to please us. He's talking about his, his company, his mortgage company. And I thought about it. I hadn't really heard about it that way, but I was like, yeah, you're right. Like, I want the people using our software, even if they're borrowers and, you know, don't pay us a dime, that doesn't matter. I want the, I want to, the borrowers to come in and just have like the seamless experience. They don't even really think about the software. They just think about like how quickly their loan closed and how easy it was to get into their house. And yeah, I think in the end, you do it for people. It's crazy that you're able to, to in 2013, find an industry, a mortgage industry, which is huge. And they were still doing everything over email. You know, I've heard it said that one of the best ways to come up with a business idea is to look at things that companies are doing over Excel or spreadsheets you know, build a web app for that. But yours was basically look at what people are doing over email, all this swapping of files and communication and asking for different documents and uh, not being able to encrypt things and just build a dashboard for that. I wonder how many other industries exist where like that doesn't, that's not happening where people are just sending emails and it, it makes no sense, but there haven't been a de- developer or uh, an entrepreneur who's come in and, and built something better for communicating that way. I think that is a really excellent way to think about it. Cause I've heard that too. Spreadsheets, what's happening in spreadsheets? What am I going to do next? What's happening in email? You know, like we have most, like almost all of our customers are in residential real estate, but we have a few who are like in solar or um, commercial real estate. And we never really went down those particular niches. I mean, Fullify could ostensibly be used for attorneys and accountants as well. We just didn't go down that route because we wanted to stay specialized and niche right? Because then we could build highly specific features that met the needs of the mortgage folks. But oh my goodness, like when was the last time any of us used an attorney, right? Talk about email. Like it's very email, like sending Word documents back and forth. And obviously, you know, SASs for attorneys exist, but I think you're onto something when you, you're sending email back and forth, boom, automatically, there's, there's got to be a better way. So you started FlowFi almost seven years ago. The benefit of hindsight, what do you think is, is harder? Keeping the business running once it's big and it's growing and you have employees to manage or the initial phases where you're just trying to get this fledgling idea off the ground and you don't have any momentum, but you also don't have any overhead yet? So like, I'll probably say a little bit of all of the above. So in the beginning, of course, it's hard to find something that somebody else really wants to exchange their hard-earned dollars with you for, right? So that's really hard. And it's really hard to know if, if there's enough of them who want to exchange those hard-earned dollars for what you're willing to build for them. But what, you know, once I got into that, and it's worked out for me twice in my life, and it's not worked out for me about eight times in my life. And so once you hit that, it's really exciting. And it's just, it's just so easy for me anyway to like want to talk to customers and say, what are you feeling? What are, what are the pain points you're feeling right now? And then we go away and we build, we write code. And that's kind of easy. And, and we sell and we market and we kind of repeat, repeat, repeat until the business starts getting big enough when you think like, oh my goodness, I'm ready to hire my first two salespeople. Because per Jason Lemkin, I won't just hire one, I'll always hire two when I'm starting out. And so that became really hard. The business of 
finding and trying, you know, people who would join your startup and trying to create that attractive environment that where they can have autonomy and trust and really build their sphere of the organization. And, it, and it's hard in the beginning, especially when you're really, really small and people think like, oh, you're just a small company and um, maybe you don't get as much as respect as when the company grows and grows and grows and people really see that you're a true going concern. This thing is going to be around for the long term. Let's talk about that early phase you mentioned where it's hard to get people to uh, part with their hard-earned dollars to use this tiny little app that you're just now getting out the door. How long did it take you to convince anybody to pay for Flowify? So let's see. I still have a GitHub check-in from June of 2013. So that was the first code check-in, although I've been thinking a lot about it uh, prior to that. But anyway, first code check-ins went in June 2013. I think we launched... Uh, like I remember we wrote, uh, I wrote a press release that went out in August of 2013. And within a couple days, we had the first couple leads, one of which was Melanie Talifero from Austin. And back then I was doing 30-day trials. So one of her loan officers signed up for a 30-day trial. I called right away. We did training, screen share trainings over the phone. And at the end of 30 days, just like Jason Freed of Basecamp fame, we didn't have credit card processing code. And so I'm like, uh, I just called and took the credit card over the phone and we ran it manually. And so that was in September. So first code check-in in June, launch in August, first paying customer in September. Three months. That's super yeah. fast. That's like, especially for 2013, when there weren't quite as many tools for building web apps and there weren't, you know, wasn't as much knowledge shared for how to get things out the door. That's... You must have had like a super bare bones, like MVP. I think so, you know, thinking back, but it's, it solved a real problem. So it was MVP, but it, while still solving a real problem, not dancing around the edges of utility, it was a real problem solver. So, and then we just focused in on, it was another developer and I just focused on being, bringing real value and not bringing fluff. It was just real value. The, the user interface was utilitarian. And one of the things I still feel lucky about to this day, uh, it was written in Bootstrap. And everyone who's seen a Bootstrap web application recognizes they're like, aha, oh, yeah. that was written in Bootstrap. But we were selling to loan officers. They didn't know. And so they didn't care. All they cared about was ease of use. And so that worked. As long as the software was easy to use and it was fast, that was okay. What about on the, the back end? Like, do you remember what you were using for your database and for the server-side code and, and things like that? Yeah, so the backend wasn't all in Java. We were using a NoSQL database at the time, no longer on that. Um, and but it really helped just with speed of development. So I didn't didn't have like what I would have found clumsy tools and architecture. I and this other developer I was working with, and he's still with us. We were we just put together a development system that we could iterate on really really fast, and we worried about some other problems we kicked that can down the road because what if this business never took off right so we took on some technical debt and it was okay because once the business was rolling we went back and addressed that there's a lot of things and starting a business that i think sound counterintuitive they sound like things you don't want to do um they sound like problems to be avoided but they actually are, are good problems to have like taking on technical debt right if you don't know if this business is going to work you don't know if you're building the right features you probably don't want to 
you know, unit test every single function in your code and make sure everything is using the perfect technology. You just want to get things out the door as quickly as possible because you might throw all this code away next month. And it can kind of seem like you're doing the wrong thing. But in reality, I think that's that's definitely the right way to approach it. Yeah, I'm a big believer in speed. Just speed, go, go, go. Like bring that value just as fast as you can because as one person said to me many years ago, Yagni, you ain't going to need it. Don't develop for this scalability or this functionality set that you think you're going to need in a year's time because you're probably not guessing right. You're probably not guessing that the bulk of your code is working it needs to scale in one particular area of the app versus another particular right. area of the app. Like don't pre-optimize. I think was it Paul Graham who says that kind of thing, but it's so true. There's a good um, sort of anecdote. I don't know if it's actually true. But it's about survivorship bias and how, you know, the planes would come back from the war and they would look where all the bullet holes are and they would say, oh, you know, the bullet holes are on the wings. So we should put more armor on the wings. But it turned out like that's the wrong conclusion. Like those are the planes that came back. So if they got shot in the wings, like obviously it's fine to get shot in the wings. You should put armor where you don't see bullet holes. And maybe that's true for companies. Maybe you can look at companies like yours or bigger companies, look at all the different problems that you still have today and conclude that those problems aren't the most important problems to solve. You know, if Facebook has a lot of technical debt, then that probably is evidence that you can start a successful startup and grow to billions of dollars while having lots of technical debt. And you shouldn't worry about that. What are some of the problems that you still have at Flowify, Dave, that, you know, perhaps someone who's starting a company shouldn't worry about because you've been able to build something successful despite having those problems? I mean, we still have technical debt. And sometimes we're interviewing developer candidates and maybe they get a little bit too focused in on that technical debt. And I'm like, hey, how about serving our customers and our, our real estate agents and our borrowers? Like, that's the most exciting thing. Let, let's focus on serving them in a, in a very useful, timely, fast way. And technical debt is always going to be there. I mean, like, like you were just saying, Facebook, you know, has technical debt. Who doesn't, right? I mean, like, there's that joke, right? Like, legacy code is any code that was written last month, right? <laughs> and uh, it's real easy. And I did it too earlier on in my career. It's easy to go into a new shop and look at it and say, oh my goodness, what were these people thinking? But, and I've done that too. But when a developer does that, they're really looking at... Maybe like the bigger picture? Yeah, like the developer is really thinking about their outlook on things. So their outlook is, how does the code run? How do I keep this software running 24-7, 365? And maybe their focus isn't quite on serving customers. And so the important thing is to be serving those customers. And yes, they do need new features. And you know, we're not lucky enough to be like a Twitter that is a very small feature set. Or look at Basecamp. You know, we use Basecamp here, and Flowify is far more complex than Basecamp. But good on DHH and Jason Freed for building this wonderful business that doesn't have a hyper complex set of features. Now, in our industry, it just doesn't work that way. There's just so much that goes into doing a mortgage. So I would think, like, again, keep sight of the bigger picture. It's not all about refactoring the code. You know, but but scalability is is the real deal. Like you will hit scalability bumps. And so when I finally stepped out of an engineering role and a long friend of mine of 20 years prior, he came in and headed up our engineering team. He did take that look at things, more scalability, you know, addressing some of the technical debt. And he's done a great job. And I'd say that was the right time. So when I was heading up our engineering team, I was like, no, let's let's deliver value, value, value. Let's go, let's go faster. 
And, and that was what we needed in the beginning, you know, as we were coming up towards like a million in revenue. And then sometime past that, all right, need to bring in someone that's more talented than me, smarter than me at these engineering things, and can look at them while still not forgetting about the customer. You did an interview back on the Indiacos website a little while ago, and we asked you about attracting users and growing your company. And you said that in the beginning, it was very difficult. The first few years were pretty rough. You're asking for referrals. You're creating content on your website. You're spreading the word through friends, just using pretty much every different method that you could to grow in the early days. Uh, give us a, a picture of, of what that looked like and, and how it turned out, because I know now you've got, I think, a million customers for Flowify or something ridiculous. Uh, but in the early days, how did you how did you scrape together those first few users and keep it going? Yeah, in the early days, I just tried everything that I knew, right? So I knew press releases, I knew content, I knew having a mailing list, you know, email list, all those things, asking for referrals. I always ask for referrals, especially in the mortgage and real estate industries. They they everybody lives on referrals, so that they get it. And so I, I did what I knew. And then it took like two years to get to 100 k in annual revenue, in annual recurring revenue, which is freaking forever. Like I'm a little bit surprised in hindsight that we didn't give up on the whole idea. But you know, every month our revenue always grew. So even with churn. And so that was encouraging, even though it took two years to get to 100K revenue. And then things started speeding up. We were able to hire different additional people. And it did get to the point, just like with our head of engineering, we, we hired a head of marketing. And this head of marketing is just, he's really good at lead generation, far better than me. And so he was able to come in and start cranking in the leads. So we have tons of inbound leads, which are great. I mean, we do our share of outbounding, you know, in our space, we do have six figure customers and we have $59 a month customers. So we don't outbound for the $59 a month customer, but the six figures, absolutely we do. So it just became kind of a mix of which approaches to use. Um, but again, our head of marketing, so much better at generating leads than I ever was. And so the way I look at it is I did what I, as best as I knew how to do, drive some revenue, and then we got some revenue going. And I'm like, oh, thank goodness, people much smarter than me. But I had to be the first one to do it. I had to be the first one to sell initially. I was doing all the initial sales, all the initial marketing, because you don't really know who would be the right person, even though they're so much more talented than you, you still have to be able to recognize some of the right qualities to come in after you yeah. and do a better job of you at sales, marketing, engineering, so on. Yeah. Hiring is not easy. And if you don't know what you're doing, then how are you going to hire somebody who's better than you? You're probably just going to hire somebody worse than you. Yeah. And you do hear a lot about like someone's working on a startup and they were like, oh, we'd have sales if I could just right, find that right VP of sales. And it totally doesn't work that way. You so have what to sell yourself. What was the inflection point that helped you start growing faster? Was it just that you had a certain size and word of mouth growth really became meaningful? Or was it uh, that you hired someone and that flipped the switch? Or was you know growing faster what allowed you to hire somebody? Yeah, it, it, there was no like inflection point along the way. It was just steady growth throughout. And um, when I got the steady growth going, you know, I and a couple of the small, the folks who were with us in the beginning, and then we all got the growth growing a little bit and we got a little bit bigger, a little bigger. And we got to the point where we were ready to hire some folks who could take over ownership of certain segments of the business and really run with that. So I, I won't say it was like this one particular point. It's just been sort of a continuous 
path. Slow and steady. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's been that way. So you are out in Boulder, Colorado. I've been meaning to get out there and visit at some point, but I haven't yet. What's the uh, the tech scene? What's the tech scene like in Boulder? Yeah, it's a really good tech scene in Boulder and Denver's nearby and all up and down the mountains, the Colorado Front Range. There's lots of good tech folks doing all kinds of things. Certainly nothing like San Francisco, of course, the Bay Area, absolutely not. But it's there's a lot of folks who are just into tech here. It's it's become a kind of tech hub all of its own. Are there a lot of companies raising money? Are there a lot of self-funded companies like the ones that you started? Well, the funny thing is, is I only hear about people raising money because the press put picks it up. You know, like who can blame reporters? Reporters need to write about something. And small companies don't really want to reveal their revenue. And, and, and why should they? should they? It doesn't exactly help them to do it. So when someone raises money, say, hey, I raised 10 million bucks. Well, you know, newspaper, news outlets will pick it up, right? Because it's like hard factual news. So I don't hear much about self-funded folks, but that doesn't mean they're not out there. You've mentioned a couple of Jasons a couple of times in this episode. Jason Lemkin, who runs Saster, and Jason Freed, who runs Basecamp. And it gets me thinking about you know who you learn from as a founder when you're sort of in these early stages. There's a lot of books out there. There's a lot of stories of people getting started. As you get bigger, the number of companies who've reached the same size of you as you are bigger that you can kind of look up to you uh, shrinks. You know, especially in a particular space. Like how many SaaS companies in the mortgage industry can you really look to you for a playbook? Uh, so I'm curious, Dave. How do you learn and how do you you know I guess gut check yourself and figure out you know am I doing the right things? Uh, when you're running multi-million dollar SaaS companies? So the way that I do it and the way I've always done it is I just read everything I get my hands on. I listen to every podcast I get my ears on, like Indie Hackers and Saster. And and I read like the books that Jason Fried and DHH put out. And it's when you're listening, when you're reading a tweet or reading a blog post or a Quora post, there's usually not any one thing in there that you say, oh my goodness, like this is going to change my year. But collectively, they all kind of add up. And you do need to be a little bit wary of like internet startup wisdom. There's a lot of internet startup wisdom that we all just assume to be the case. One of that is you cannot start a tech company without raising money. And in fact, I think some part of the internet wisdom is starting a tech company and raising money go hand in hand. like. Like walking or running, going out for a run and putting in, sh- putting on shoes. They go hand in hand, right? Like, let's forget about the barefoot runners for a second. You wouldn't normally think of going running without your shoes, hand in hand. And so I think it's good for folks to realize that there are other ways. There's lots of other ways, like Tyler Tringus, Ernest Capital, folks like that. And there's going to be 10 other ways to make it possible, and not all markets are going to be these markets that can generate billion-dollar valuations. You know, what's wrong with running a $10 million a year company? There's really nothing wrong with that. You know, maybe you, you're not going to be able to compete in some markets, and a lot of markets, in fact, you're not going to be able to compete, but also in lots and lots of markets, you compete really well. How do you compete in the industry that you're in? Because I know there are probably some well-funded competitors who, who've raised from venture capitalists who are trying to swallow the entire market. How do you continue growing your business and do you think about the competition at all? Yeah, I think that some of our top competitors, they've all raised money. And so how do we compete? We just, we go out, we listen to customers and we move fast on what we hear. So I'm still, I still say like, I say speed wins. It's what I've said for a long time. So 
you, you can take that analogy too far. You can say, oh, you become reckless. And no, don't take the analogy too far. But by having that tight feedback loop, staying agile and moving fast, it can beat a lot of the bigger companies. And some of our competitors have, in my opinion, my humble opinion, they've overraised. They raised too much money. And so they have to start looking in adjacent markets. And that's that's all well and good, but it's a little bit harder. It's a little bit harder when you're looking at six different things that you need, that's you know, six different business units within your company, perhaps. And that's not to knock them at all. I mean, they they all serve their customers well, as do we. But we also naturally become rather unique because we're only just serving folks who are doing mortgages. And we do it in a particular way. And we've all read about your software will naturally and normally become differentiated in some way. You never want your software, as much as you can help it, to be a total clone of another. Because then you're just you know, competing on price and nobody wants to compete on price. Yeah, it's interesting to, to think about the fact that because you haven't raised money, you don't have any pressure to go into these adjacent markets. I mean, you, men- you mentioned this earlier in the episode, you focus very much on your segment and that allows you to basically serve them better than anybody else because you can only focus on their needs. You don't have to give them these watered down solutions that kind of sort of help two different types of customers. Whereas, you know, a company who's raised from venture capitalist needs to be worth a billion dollars to, to justify their company even existing. And so now they've got to target all these other markets. So I think, you know, a big part of the equation here is just being part of a market that's not quite big enough for any one company to, to sort of own it all and still get the kind of returns that a VC would want is a huge advantage. Yeah, I th- and I definitely am not the, the type I want to knock competitors or anything like that. But you, know, you look at like Google, for example. Google does a lot of things well, but everything they do, they don't do well, right? So we really like doing one thing particularly well. And the market is still big enough for us to serve our customers well. We're growing towards a $10 million in annual revenue. And our top competitors can also exist. It actually works out that way, and, and that's okay. Another thing you've mentioned a couple times is working with people that you give a lot of autonomy to and a lot of trust to. And that seems inherently appealing to me. I'm not, I'm not someone who loves being a manager. I'm not someone who loves building out a team and having to sort of transition from working on the things that I like doing. And I'm sure lots of listeners are the same way. You know, they're developers or they're creatives. They really like working on the business. They don't you know, want to manage other people. And so having a team of other people who are kind of similarly minded, who can take responsibility for things you can trust to get a lot done when you're not sort of looking over their shoulder, uh, sounds quite frankly, pretty awesome. Uh, the only catch is how do you do that? <laughs> it sounds like it's much <laughs> harder to hire someone like that than it is to hire, you know, more of a normal um, type of employee. How do you build a business full of people who you can give so much autonomy and trust to? It helps a lot of times when you've known someone before, previously in your career, but that's that happens to me pretty rarely. And so um, I try to look for people, you know, I, I never discount anybody depending on their background, but I love seeing people who've had to be scrappy at smaller companies. If, been, if you've been working at IBM, I mean, just think of how easy it would be to become complacent. I'll go in every day. I know even if I totally screw up and I accidentally delete a a database table out of production, the business is still going to pay me my salary, right? But in a startup, no, that could probably not happen. Bad things could happen. And so I do look like I do look for people who have been scrappy and had to really scramble and had to own a lot of responsibility and be left alone to run with that responsibility and be very well organized and could be left alone for, you know, 
weeks at a time, even though I do do one on, weekly one-on-ones with my direct reports. But still, you just want to kind of like just provide like overall guidance, see how you can help, let them know what some of the principles of the company are, you know, customers first, speed, simplicity, don't overcomplicate solutions, don't get so narrow focused with tunnel vision. So all I can think about is whether my code is running on the latest version of my my development framework or not, you know, different things like that. Yeah, it's tough when you're the founder because you're wearing every different hat and you think about the overall business outcomes. But as an employee with a specific role, it's it's sometimes you need a reminder that like it's not all about your particular role. And sometimes you might have to make sacrifices for the greater good of everything going on at the company. And it's not the natural way to think if you're not kind of at the top. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And you know, I I do even talk about succession plans. You know, everyone, not just me, but like everyone. You know, who are you starting to groom to take over your spot? You know, you never know what's going to happen. And um, I'm not married to being CEO, right? So I just love being a part of like these great organizations that bring such awesome benefits to customers. Like I personally don't necessarily need to be at the top. I just, I love being part of this, these organizations. And that's what, that's what I think about. So I, I do, I do talk to my direct reports about succession plans from time to time. Well, you may not be married to being CEO, but you are married to your co-founder. <laughs> uh, you are a husband and wife duo running both Flowify and Flux. Is that right? That's right. We are. We are. How do you make that work? I've met uh, a lot of couples who have not made it work. There's a little <laughs> bit of selection bias going on. They don't ever come onto the podcast, but you're here. You guys are making it work. Uh, how do you you know, keep your relationship healthy and how do you manage like your personal lives when you basically work together all the time? Yeah, I don't know. I think it just works. Like we work at home a lot. We work in the office a lot. When we come to the office, we're usually riding together and we talk a lot about the businesses, what's going on, high level, of course. And for us, it works. It's a lot of fun. I love working with her, Michelle. And um, it's just just worked out for us. But I I totally get like some couples, it may very much not work out okay. (laughs) How did it? How did it start? Did um, one of you or the other suggest you know the other to get involved, or um, was your wife already sort of entrepreneurial? So for, for Flowify, for example, in the beginning, you know, just a lot of code needed to be written. So initially, it was me and another developer. His name is a rule. He's in he's in Texas these days, and so initially, it was just a rule in me writing lots of code, and then I naturally handled like support and sales and marketing. But eventually, when things got a little bit traction and momentum, my wife started coming in and she started working a lot on marketing. That seemed like a good role for her. And ironically, she's an operating room nurse. So she's a nurse and that's what she's done most of her career. But she really adapted well into marketing and she eventually took over management of our support team. She runs our finance I've sort of just mostly fallen back to engineering and product. And she mostly, uh, I think of us as co-CEOs, really. Mm -hmm. But but I hold the title and she's our CFO. It's just, it's worked out well for us. What would you say are some of the biggest challenges that you've had running Flowify in particular in the last six and a half years? Because it sounds like things have been pretty pretty smooth, smooth running. I mean, your partnership with your wife is going well. Your hires seem to have gone well. You've been able to build more or less the right product and grow to millions of dollars in revenue. What have been some of the speed bumps? So they've been lots, right? So it all looks like peaches and roses on the outside, right? So making sure that we're moving at the right pace. 
oftentimes I feel like we're moving too slow, whether it may be, whether it be sales or customer success, growing our existing accounts or making sure our customer satisfaction scores coming out of our support team are high enough. There's lots and lots to worry about. And there's lots and lots to initially back in the early, early days, I just doubled down. You know, if I thought we were moving too slow, and I often did, I just, we would sit down and talk about it and we say, how could we figure out how to move faster? And that still happens today. It happens with more people. And sometimes I still think that, hey, we move a little too slow. I would say like, so you, so you ask, what are some of the greatest challenges? Some of them are, of course, sales. We always want to be increasing our sales. So we want to be like selling so much in monthly recurring revenue but we also want to figure out how to be increasing that amount of new MRR yep. that's coming in every month, right? So you don't, it's great if you're adding a thousand in MRR every month, that's great. But if, if 12 months later, you're only still adding a thousand a month in new MRR, it's a little tough. So you do want to be looking for ways to how to increase it from a thousand to 1500 to 2500 over time. It doesn't happen month to month. That's pretty tough to sustain. So like right there, and I've always kind of said sales cures all. And I say that mostly because I'm the introverted software developer. So if I see a problem, a challenge that could be solved in software or -hmm. talking to customers and seeing what their real pain points are, to me, that's a much easier problem than getting out there and getting new customers to come in and see the awesome things you built for them. To me, that's a much harder problem so um, yeah, just in a nutshell, those are those are a few of the challenges that we faced along the way. Two of the things I think a lot of founders underestimate in, in growing their businesses are uh, churn and monetization. So obviously, you want to keep your churn as low as possible, otherwise it's hard to grow your revenue, but also monetization. The more money you can charge, the more frequently you can charge, uh, the easier it is to grow your revenue. How have you thought about those two problems with Flowify? Have you had any challenges with either one of those? Yeah. So those are always tough. Churn, especially. So we have both small customers pay us 59 bucks, customers who pay us like six figures and up. And we, those are two different segments, two different cohorts, if you will. And we have different churn numbers with both those segments. And um, you just always want to be working on driving them down, driving them down, like kind of find out what's a good churn number for you in your industry and take that as a benchmark and just work at chipping away at it, chipping away at it. And so churn is always a concern kind of in parallel with, you know, getting the sales numbers up. Yeah. I've spoken to some founders who've uh, had the good fortune of being in an industry and having the type of product where churn is just intrinsically low. So um, I spoke to the guys at Honey Badger, for example, it's like a monitoring service you set up on your servers. You install Honey Badger, you just forget about it. They have something like you know, half a percent monthly churn. It's basically minuscule. So they can grow super slowly and acquire new customers and they never lose anybody. So they actually grow pretty steadily over time. With what I'm working on, Andy Hackers, it's literally the polar opposite. I'm talking to founders. Founders quit all the time. Uh, building an online forum, people turn out of an online forum all the time. And so it's a huge problem. Uh, where would you say the sort of natural churn levels are for your industry? So I would probably say, you know, if you're selling $50 a month subscriptions, you want to be trying to get under 2% churn per month. And half a percent is just amazing. You know, so like shoot really hard for getting under 2% if you're selling something for that's less than $100 a month, I would say. 
What about monetization? You've talked about how you've got customers who pay you 55, 60 bucks a month and you have customers who pay you six figures. Which customer segment did you go after first and how did you decide to expand into the second segment? So I went after the smaller customers first. The sales cycle was much, much shorter. In the beginning, when I'm making sales calls, if I wasn't talking to a loan officer who had her boots on the ground and she was actually doing loans, if I talked to someone higher up in the organization, that person would tell me, I've already got software that does that. I don't, I don't need your software. And it's true. They did have software that did it. The problem was it was really poor. And the early adopter loan officers knew that. They knew it was poor. And they knew that there were people out there on the interwebs thinking about making this a better experience. So very much it was early adopters and the small folks. And it took time for the folks who weren't in the trenches, but they were higher up in the lending organizations to realize that our software could really benefit them. And it did not hurt that a few years ago, Rocket Mortgage had a Super Bowl commercial that said, if you tap the face of your phone, you'll get a mortgage in 15 seconds. That actually really helped us a lot because lots and lots of mortgage company owners were like, uh-oh, things are changing now. And no, by the way, you can't get a mortgage in 15 seconds. <laughs> um, we'd all love that to be the case, but there are lots and lots of laws in place that require discl mortgage disclosures to be sent out three days in advance and it's not easy to borrow $400,000. People want to make sure that you're going to be able to repay that money. Um, but the Rocket Mortgage commercial helped us a ton. Let's talk about some of the broader learnings that you've had as a founder, Dave, because you've been doing this for a long time. As you said, you've had a couple businesses that have succeeded. You've had eight or so where things didn't quite work out. Um, and you're also serving a lot of business owners. There's people you've mentioned who started you know, mortgage companies and they're making millions of dollars a year not in an industry that I'm familiar with at all. So I guess my first question is, what have you learned from your customers and the businesses that they run? I've learned it's all about relationships. All of it. It's all about relationships. It's about how you can partner with and serve other folks in different areas of the entire mortgage spectrum. But in the end, it really all does come down to relationships. Are you a good partner? Do I love working with you? Or do you let me down? Do you deplete? The trust battery, or are you always growing and filling up the trust battery? How good of a re and reliable of a partner are you? And it all comes down to those relationships. So the CEOs that I text with, they know if they hit me up for anything, they know that either I personally or someone on my team will address it, or we're helping them by getting out ahead of the curve. We're thinking about some of the problems that we anticipate that they're going to anticipate. And so they look at us too as a partner. It's like, oh, we care about their business. We want them, we want to help them recruit more high-performing loan officers to their organizations. And it goes both ways too. They know that if I and our team are asking some questions, hey, can we hang out in your office for a couple of days and just learn? They're doing their part too as part of that relationship. So I, I really think it comes down to relationships. It would be different if we're like a Netflix, right? So Netflix charges 13 bucks a month. You can't invest in relationships at 13 bucks. And, and kudos to Netflix. They're, they're massive and they made it work for them. But for me, it's, it's come down to relationships. What about the differences between starting a business back when you started Flux in 2000 and, and starting a business when you started Flowify in 2013? I'm sure a lot has changed and a lot has remained the same. Um, what are some of the learnings you've, you've gotten as a result of seeing the differences between these two businesses? I mean, the biggest, most obvious difference for me 
when I started Flux way back in 2000, because back then the software was on-premise. So there was downloading the software and installing it on your server or what have you. And I missed the early wave of cloud. I certainly was not there for Salesforce when they launched in 99 or 98, whatever it was. And it, it took me a little while to come around to the cloud idea. I remember like having an employee and he said to me once, I don't want to rent my software. I want to own it. Meaning I want the CD or I want the download. And he was a software developer. And I, I know that he would have changed his mind over the years as well, just like I did too. So I know that I missed some of those early cloud learnings. And I know I miss a lot of the early things. The one thing I like to joke about is I'm old enough. To, I'm going to date myself a little bit here. So way back in 1984, I was post-graduation uh, from high school. And I, was just, I wasn't even on the internet yet. But you know, with all the old dial-up modems and bulletin board systems, I was running one of them. And other hobbyists could dial in and store their files on my computer. And they could dial in later and download them again. So that's how I like like to talk about how I missed the whole Dropbox phenomenon. <laughs> I could have hit it in 1984, but I remember thinking back then, I was thinking, who would want to store their files on someone else's computer? Like, I want it on my computer. So I missed that too. There's just so much I've missed. <laughs> Do you think uh, having like, you know, such a, a long career in the tech space and seeing these different trends that you miss... Uh, makes you more attuned or better at spotting new trends as, as they appear? Is it always different every time? I think in my case, it doesn't necessarily help me because I, I still miss tons of trends, right? And um, I think the one thing that's maybe helped me is to realize that change happens, really. And that's not that exciting or profound, but change happens and what's happening you know, we all came of age using our electronic devices in high school or middle school or like elementary school. Things change and what you learned when you were eight, 10 years old is different at age 20. Just be open to the change. Just be open to the change. Yeah. Well, Dave, I've kept you for an hour. It's been super cool hearing your story with Flux and with Flowify and talking about how much relationships matter. I could not agree more. A lot of people listening in are just getting started in their careers as founders. They hope to someday build a business as successful as the two that you've built. What would your, what would your advice be for someone just getting started? And what do you think they can learn from your story and your learnings? I would probably say, you know, be passionate about it. Be hard charging about it. Move fast. You know, as they say, move fast, break things. That's all great stuff in the beginning. Also know when to let go. Like in 2000, I started three businesses. And the first two... I realized along the way they weren't going to work. And I knew when to let them go, even though at times it was hard because I'd put in so much work. And so I would say, know when to let go, but then know when, try to like spot when you could, should keep going forward and something might start clicking and it, you, you'll see the future and to stick with it. Dave Sims, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much. It's been a blast. Can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about what you're up to with Flux and Flowify? So Flowify, flowify.com, F-L-O-I-F-Y.com. And Flux is at flux.ly. All right. Thank you so much, Dave. Listeners, if you enjoyed listening to this episode, I would really appreciate it if you get in touch with Dave and let him know. He's on Twitter at Flowify Dave. 
Also, I am now writing about each episode. I share my thoughts and some of my takeaways and key learnings from each episode. So if you want to sign up for that newsletter, go to ndhackers.com slash podcast and subscribe. Once again, that's ndhackers.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. Thank you.